G'day and welcome to Radio Notes. Our feature guest this episode is Elizabeth Shearer. Her performing name is Miss Zella Shear. Caught up with her during the Adelaide Fringe 2019. First thing we do every episode is we have a look in the box. Correspondence that have come through in the last little while, including that from Universal Music of a brand new Johnny Cash tune with Cheryl Crow. This is a collaboration with the late Johnny Cash. It's called Redemption Day. The Sher Show, the Sher Show original Broadway cast recording is currently out through Warner Music. Madonna has a brand new single that's currently out as well as part of a full-tracked album of Madame X. Standard deluxe versions will be available April the 25th. Jasmine Ray right now is the name of her brand new single and that's out also through Universal Music. Beck has a brand new one called Saw Lightning through EMI Records. And the debut EP from the IV League, When You Lose Me, out now from them. And there's brand new music from L7, Burn Baby. The brand new single out on the Black Heart Records label will be out on Friday the 3rd of May through an album called Scatter the Rats out on Joan Jett's Black Heart Records label. May know I mentioned this recently, but Dan Sultan has a brand new children's record called Nile and Friends that has also dropped through ABC Music. That's some of the uh, messages that have come through via the inbox in the last week or two. Now time for our feature guest. Elizabeth Shearer performs currently as Miss Seller Shear, a 27-year-old in a world full of opinions. But there is more to them than their current Cabaret Plus stage presence through this high-energy character. Shearer is Brisbane-born, two of the UK with a full vocal range and performing seeds set in opera, with a diversity of skills across the stage and with audiences around the world. Ahead of their Adelaide French run, they spoke to Radio Notes at Lot 10, Kachina and Bar. Elizabeth Shearer, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you for having me. You're here in Adelaide, South Australia with your alter ego, who is a performance uh, queen mm-hmm. of uh, great repute. Yep. Less, less so as the night goes on, but <laughs> Miss uh, Zella Shear. Yes. We may speak about that character as we converse in the next little while. We talk about musicians talking about life and those in life talking about music. And you've got that lovely cross-section of of both of those. When did music first appear for for Liz? Uh, Music's always been a part of my life, really. Uh, My parents uh, always had opera on or jazz on. And actually, my um, brother um, is a singer and uh, he trained in opera. And, you know, you, you see your older sibling doing something and you think, wow, that looks like fun. So I actually got into it probably because of my brother. Um, so I'm very grateful uh, because it's a passion that's just kept me going. Is there much of an age gap? Is it an older brother? Uh, older brother, but about a year and a half distance. Yeah, sure. So not too, too big. He's a fantastic, still is a fantastic singer. So um, definitely a good person to look up to. When did music and schooling start for you? Was it a high school thing or was it when you got to uni? Actually, su- surprisingly, uh, at school, I didn't do music. I loved to sing, so I sang um, privately. And then uh, I was doing drama. I, was, I loved drama. And then when I graduated, I auditioned for the con and uh, got into their um, six-month program. And then from there, I applied for the, uh, the Bachelor of Music in Classical Voice. So that's how the progression happened. Now, Classical Voice then led to opera as a genre for yes, you? Yes, yes. Um, because during um, that degree, you about twice a year, you do an opera. Um, and in that, I, I tended to do kind of small roles and like act, acting roles. And um, it's something that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And it was the most enjoyable bit of my degree was looking forward to the, the operas every year. How did you bring yourself from someone who may not have been into music at a younger age into the field of opera, which I perceive to be a very demanding field of musical study? Yes, yeah, it, it um, definitely is something that you have to practice every day. And uh, it started off, again, with, with my brother. He went to the conservatorium of uh, music. He was one that said to me, because when I finished school, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I, I wasn't sure whether to audition for drama school or um, follow a, a more musical path. And he suggested to me that I, I should audition and do some research about what the the course had to offer. And I did some research and it and it seemed really interesting to me. 
you know, when you finish school, you, you're not quite sure. I, I don't know, some people are sure, but I know quite a few people that aren't sure what they should do. I saw this as an exciting whole new avenue that I, I, I'd never kind of imagined. And so that, that's why I decided to take the step because it, it seemed so interesting. What was your first experience with opera as a performance? When did you engage at that level? So not you doing it, but when you actually engaged with it. I am trying to think back, sorry, because my, my father used to take us to the, to the opera at the, um, that uh, opera, uh, opera Queensland used to do. So it would have been one of those first, um, first operas. I remember quite vis- vividly, like um, Mandy Patinkin. Uh, it, it was an it opera, but he was singing operatic arias. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with him because he was a character as well, like he was a showman. And so that aspect of theatre, because that's the other side of Liz as mm. well, for me, I love opera, but it's that the, the acting side of thing that, that always kind of grabs me. For example, the, the, one of the first things we did was Sor Angelica and uh, Gianni Skiki, uh, a double bill. And in that, I got to perform quite a, kind of clownish roles a character, um, in, in the Gianni Skiki. And for me, that connected the opera with the acting. And that's when I realised that that is more where I wanted to pursue not just standing and singing I guess there's a a habit of doing that in opera just stand we sing an aria we bow we walk off Um, Mm. which is fantastic for for some people love that but for me it was missing something it can be great enough to get you to Eurovision as well yeah yeah of course how how did you feel about Kate Miller-Heike as that kind of performer getting into Eurovision for Australia I think she's fabulous I think she's amazing she um she has such a voice that's trained, but she, she's free with it and she's experimental. And um, I, I look up to her, actually, as someone that, um, yes, did the classical degree, but, but did her own thing with it. She or didn't, wasn't just, you know, a carbon copy of people coming out of an institution. So I, um, I really look up to her. That channel of mm. using opera for something other than the standard, mm. does that come into your performance as well? Yeah, um, I... Again, like I say, I love opera and I think it's beautiful. For me, it didn't quite fit in, in what I wanted to do with, uh, with my career and, and as an artist. I wanted to mix different genres together. I, I, I understand it's a specialised art form, but there was something about the elitist nature that uh, sort of, not irked me, but there was just something that I, I wanted it to be more accessible. I always felt like I was um, being judged not being perfect and because the opera world you know you you have this idea that well there is the idea that it has to be flawless and I sort of me as a person I didn't think that was healthy and I wanted to play with that in a different way and which I think I do in in the show that I'm doing now bite me with smile we're currently speaking of Liz Shearer she is currently doing that very show at the Adelaide Fringe and we'll tour it I'm sure after that but definitely Hope so yeah. <laughs> The idea of imperfections, I, Elizabeth Shearer, may not be perfect. I think it's something that happens as we grow up, like adolescence. It sort of happens when you're a child. You don't seem to worry. You don't care about like what other people think of you. And then when you get to your adolescence um, and puberty, uh, you start to care what people think and you maybe change and you're trying to find yourself. And only recently... I've, I've definitely tried to, to not care, to, to just do what I'm going, you know, say what I want to say and, and be who I want to be and, and, and kind of think for myself why I do something. What was the catalyst for that? Uh, I lived in the UK uh, for four years and then a year and a half ago I moved back to Australia. And I think living in the UK was my catalyst because I was away from everyone uh, you know, like, I guess, friends and family, obviously, very supportive. But you're away from also another, uh, that world that you grew up in, where people have a preconceived idea about who you are and what you should be doing. And in the UK, I sort of had to find myself, like, I know it sounds really, like, really corny, but I, I had to find what what made me me and, and what sustains me um, without, because it was quite isolating there on my own. Um, and... I think it built me up to 
to actually own what I, wh- who I am and, and, and what I want to do. So when I came back to Australia, it didn't, it didn't matter what people were saying around me. It still doesn't matter what people say around me because I want to do what sustains me, what makes me happy, and but I'm doing it. Then is the obvious question of mm-hmm. why go to the UK? Well, it's something that I, I imagine a lot of people have is when you, you finish a degree or you finish something and you, you say to yourself, well, what now? What do I do now? And I, um, you, you sort of want to go as far away from the norm and, and uh, the everyday as you can. So I did go you know, halfway across the world to do something different. And I traveled and, and I wanted adventure. And, and I, I, did, I got that and it was amazing. But there's always a time, again, not for everyone, but for, for me when I, I wanted to come home. How did music treat you whilst you were in the UK? Well, it was a bit of a, a, a wake-up call in, in some areas. It wasn't just opera, because when I finished my degree, I thought, well, I'll be an opera singer. It makes sense. I'll go you know, to Europe and to the UK and, and I'll do opera. And I did do some stuff, um, some, some operas while over there. But then, like, this kind of door got opened to all these other genres, like, to, to jazz, to musical theatre. And then I met someone, um, uh, my, my best friend, uh, who was a stand-up comedian. And she was like, have you ever thought about sketch comedy? And I hadn't, I definitely not thought about sketch comedy. And so we did some sketches together, and I, I kind of added some of the music that I'd been learning into it. And I realised I could mix genres, I could mix styles. And that was, that was the probably the catalyst really for, for where I am now for you who's your comedic icons he's a UK um, stand up so Jack Whitehall I think he's he's hilarious and funny but he's he's actually quite like you wouldn't know it but he's got a script like but because he's so natural you don't think he's got a script you think he's just um, just uh, improvising and I think that's amazing to be that natural that, that you think someone's just uh talking freely um so he's amazing uh well, that's something that you now do in your own performance is it not yes the yeah. idea of scripting so it sounds like you're not yeah and it's quite tricky to be recently actually i was going to rehearsal with the director <laughs> like he'd yell at me i can't believe you i don't believe you and it's sort of that thing of trying to be believable but sticking to your script and your and i found through um thought pattern that's the best way to do it so rather than a, a learned script you know one thought goes to the next thought goes to the next thought so um that's something that i i definitely admire from jack whitehall also the fabulous um cabaret singer uh, meow, meow meow amazing like definitely someone i look up to a free plug uh hopefully meow meow yeah. will appreciate this but the uh, album with uh, barry humphreys mm. and rufus wainwright is not too far away with the pink martini mm. uh, collaboration oh amazing yeah Brand and barry humphreys from her Barry Humphreys is hilarious. I saw him recently. Uh, such an icon, and uh, didn't give a didn't give a shit what people thought. So I love it. That's that's the kind of person I love. <laughs> Comedy then comes into your vernacular mm-hmm. thanks to this friend. Yeah, that steered me in the said, right. Female comedian, yeah, so comedian. So you had a conversation with them, and the duo then came from that. What was the duo? I believe they did something called Am I Not Pretty Enough? Yes. Uh, so we were next to normal. And uh, the first show we did was Am I Not Pretty Enough? Um, and then Double Whammy. So Am I Not Pretty Enough was at the Camden um, Festival in London. And then uh, Double Whammy was in uh, Brighton for the Brighton Fringe. And that's when I s- really thought that this is the life I wanted to live. I love, I love Fringe Theatre and I love the atmosphere. We were two women um, wanting to talk about, in the first show, we wanted to highlight that artists, what we do is an art form that should be valued. And, and we find a lot of things that, that artists don't get paid for what they do. And uh, so the first, the first um, show was about that. And also about uh, kind of pressures that are put on to women it was our first putting our, like, dipping our toe in the water of what it was to be two, two women in this world. How important gender was for those productions? To be honest, the first one was also to do with self-worth. Not necessarily the fact that we were women, but because we were women, it was the guys, like, the, the, the way we were able to project those, those feelings about self-worth. Um, and for, for both of us, we, we wanted to explore you, 
ex- yeah, explore diff- everyone's kind of feelings of, of, about their self-worth using, using comedy. Do you think, Liz, that people have more or less self-worth than they had previously in your personal journey? I think we question it more. What is our self-worth? And I think it's, it's a good thing that now we are, we are questioning it. But I think the world around us is making people doubt their self-worth. So I think it's good that we are trying to, to acknowledge that we have self-worth, but there are avenues around us, you know, whether that is social media, that is, that is lowering our self-worth. So it's about checking in on that. I was um, actually saw something on Instagram recently um, from Russell Brand, and it was about filtering your Instagram. So if something doesn't make you feel good or makes you lowers your self worth, then filter it out. Like you know, great for them, the, the person that you're looking on the feed, that they're happy for them, and that's fantastic. But you don't need to see it if it's making you not feel mm. like you have enough self worth. And I think that's a really great idea. Let's talk about. One of the ideas that the current show that you have touches on, because it'll be quite fresh for you, I guess, to talk around yeah. and wax for us, it's the idea of the wolf whistle equaling mm. a like on social media. So when is a wolf whistle acceptable? This show has been really helpful for me too, because I have been asking myself this question since I, since I wrote the show like last year. It's all dependent, and it depends on the, the, the person, mm. how, what they think is acceptable. Um, like the woman or, or male who's getting wolf whistle, it depends if they find it acceptable. Because even here in Adelaide, over the last two days, I've been honked, like just walking along the street. It brought that question to my head. How did it make me feel? Like slightly flattered? Yeah. But then also, it brought to my conscious consciousness, like... Uh, not that I wasn't safe, but it put me on guard a little bit. And you start to think, well, what if a young girl was, you know, like, you know, we've established that I'm, I'm hurtling towards my 30s. But if someone younger, if that's how they're positioned, you know, it's, how does that affect someone's mind? So I, I don't have a black, it's not black and white. There's, there's areas of grey because, you know, we, a lot of people post things, male and female, to get likes. Hmm. To feel good, I, I can only assume to, to, to feel good. When you post something, you get a like. You feel good. It releases like um, hormones. Yeah, endorphins. So what's the difference between that because you're posting it and, and you're walking down the street like you've got a new dress on, you're feeling good and someone like wolf whistles you? That might feel good. But, you know, you might be walking home from a horrible day at work and someone wolf whistles you and you just think, oh, just, just stop it. Like, it's disgusting. So it's not, it's not black and white, and people can't just say, oh, it's wrong. Well, I, I, okay, people can say that, yeah. but I personally find it hard. I, I don't, I can't personally say that because I feel like there's areas of a grey need to be considered. Because there, there are some lines that are very strictly... Yeah, not. well, in my show I, I mentioned um, in France, there's the people will face fine, fines for catcalling. It makes me think... Well, there's that, and then there's social media. Is it because we've chosen to post it and get a like? Is that the difference? So, mm. what? Well, I just, I just want to open a dialogue between people. I'm not saying what's right and what's wrong. I just, I think, mm. think about how we got to this point. Is is my question? This huge topic, and some people have their like strong points of view on, on both sides. And, and that's sort of also why I wrote the show, Bite Me But Smile, because I'm genuinely confused. I'm not going to, like, hand on heart, I don't have the answers. You look very confused as well. Yeah, <laughs> thank like, you. Well, and what I mean by that is I could put various different arguments or points of view towards you, and it's still going to be a grey area. But for me, 100%, because I, that's sort of in my nature. I like to weigh things up. I like to think about, well, maybe there's a guy who's just happened to glance, like accidentally catch someone's breasts and like as a woman I've sometimes looked like oh sorry like you know and they didn't mean to do it it wasn't like a, a, a voyeuristic like thing that they did but they accidentally caught it and then the woman gets offended and or you know I can talk about like a hot guy and uh, you know with my friends and I'm objectifying that guy and that's wrong 
but it still happens to men as well. So the the thing is, it happens on both sides, and and I think you have to weigh up each situation and see what you feel personally about that situation without everyone else telling you what's right and wrong. What do you actually feel? If it was you, how would that make you feel? I think that's the only way, really. Because I was weighing up the fact that you made comments on social media about the number of wolf whistles, mm. etc. you're getting in Adelaide, but in the same breath, near close to that, that you've got hot guys in your production. Yeah. In my show, I, I want it to be a thought provoker. I want people on both sides to start thinking about the shades of grey. Like, because I bring some men up on stage. And if I flipped it and a guy brought some women on stage, would, would it still be the same reaction? Hmm. And then also is that the thing too, I've seen some stuff where it's like people are scared to do things like comedy um, because they they will offend. Maybe not comedy because I, comedians like to offend. That's sort of the idea of it. But we're always got this thought in the back of our, our minds: Is this offensive? Which is probably not a bad thing to actually have in your mind in this day and age. But uh, it's sort of knowing your audience. I think this all came about from talking about your mate, who is a comedian, yeah. who happened to be female. <laughs> and this was whilst you were in the UK as well. I'll get back to UK a little later. Whilst we're still in this yeah. objectifying, not objectifying... Confusing world. Yeah. And we want to talk about music. And I think you you like music. You I know, like music, you yeah. You like your bangers, so to speak. <laughs> How do you feel about music video clips? It's in the sense of the objectification yeah. of the singer. I May think, they be male or female. I think that's where the like, confusion starts. It's uh, You know, you get shirtless guys dancing and uh, I was watching a music video actually this morning like and uh, girls in bikinis like grinding and and, and that's like marketable and, 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 and people watch it and people promote it but again like how, how is that a, like how is we decided that's okay but then to, to be objectified like they're, they're being objectified like and yet we're promoting that. But then in France, we're banning wolf whistles. It, I'm, I can't be the only person confused. We're currently speaking with Liz Shearer. Thank you very much for sticking with us here on Radio Notes. Let's talk burlesque. Yes, let's. I noticed in a review that uh, Dita Von Tease was mentioned in there, which was lovely. I love uh, her. Huge fan of hers. Massive. For some I reason, the review wanted to talk about uh, being Marilyn Manson's ex, where for me, Stoya is more Marilyn Manson's ex. I, I also love Marilyn Manson so that's a fun fact about me the opera singer that loves Marilyn Manson I've seen him three times but I did it on tease only once unfortunately before we go to Lesque, let's talk music yeah let's Marilyn Manson to opera is there anything else in between that might surprise that's, I think that's why I picked the sort of uh, cabaret show that I have because I, I like I like mixing I like mixing music yeah so Marilyn Manson was um always sort of a, a favorite of mine beautiful people in the show or something else no i don't I actually don't use marilyn manson in the in the show um but that's also something great for the next show to put in put in a bit of that i, I think unfortunately i like it i can't sing it it's not it's you know in terms of like heavy metal it's not quite my genre i might might love it but it uh i think it'd be a bit painful for people to hear me sing it <laughs> what other music genres are you into i uh, love jazz um ella fitzgerald uh billy holiday um I love Frank Sinatra, Slipknot, like other bands. I, I might Very popular jazz band, I hear. <laughs> no, the I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying the the difference between my style. It varies a lot. It just depends what mood I'm in. But not Cannibal Corpse. They're a bit violent. <laughs> a little bit, maybe. But, but my Chemical Romance. So that's like easing into things. So I um I like depending what mood I'm in. I, I like putting stuff on and and just getting and then you know Mike Snow and other like. If I'm in the right mood for it, I'll, all music, all music resonates. The show does have burlesque. I said we'd talk about burlesque. Yes. When did you first do burlesque? Oh, um, I think you missed the asterisk. It's bastardized burlesque. So uh, sure. I'm not going to claim to be one of the greats. Uh, I saw um, some fantastic, fantastic burlesque where they, they, they use fire and it's fantastic. M me, personally, uh, this is my first time. Uh, well, I did the Sydney Fringe Festival and I did a bit of burlesque in that. But it's more for me is the empowerment of um, dancing and, and the costumes 
yeah, the empowerment. That, for me, is burlesque. And that's what I, I do in the show. It does go horribly wrong uh, in the show. Uh, but it's worth an attempt. <laughs> it was because of Sydney Fringe that I even discovered you, which I'm, I'm very hmm. happy about. And it was because you performed at the News Agency. Mm-hmm. The News Agency is... I've never been there. It's a great venue. What was the vibe of the news agency experience? What did you get from Ali and the team, from Monique and the rest of them? They were such a supportive team. It was my first show in Sydney. They were very supportive. The tech was there. They, they accommodated my many, many props, um, extra tech rehearsals, and they supported me throughout. So I'm very grateful for that. And actually, Ali was uh, the one that suggested the Lava Wem for the Adelaide Fringe. So she sort of put that idea in my head as well, which I think is... Um, so helpful with the network of artists, recommendations and support. It, it makes a huge difference and I did feel very supported there. In 2015, only a few years ago, you were at Camden doing a speakeasy. What was that experience like? Fabulous. The first time I'd experienced anything like it. It was, all, it was like a mad uh, hatter's tea party in, the, in a, a, a kind of loft in the middle of London. It was fantastic and uh, again, another highlight of my life that I realised that People want to come see this sort of stuff. People want to be in this environment. And there is longevity in what I want to do. And it was a great feeling. For me, it was the first time I'd done uh, something like that, like getting on stage and having audience. Like, you know, you sing opera and cast up. They're not allowed to say anything. They just have to sit down and shut up. And uh, you just sing. So for me, it was quite a little bit daunting. But I loved it. And I think that was another moment where I thought, this is fun. I get to actually talk to my audience. And it took, the pre- in a weird way, it took the pressure off. I find now when I sing and I talk, you know, it's okay because I've, had the, I've got this rapport with the audience and I'm able to um, you just engage with them at, a, at another level. Like, that's, it's that fourth wall thing. It's not just me on stage doing my thing. It's, it's all of us having a good time and enjoying Cabaret itself is very much part of that, is it not? Yeah. Uh, here in Adelaide, apart from the Fringe and the Festival, we have the Cabaret Fringe and Festival yeah. as well, which is how we spend our winters. Love it. How's the Cabaret family been treating you when you've tapped into Cabaret? Everyone is really welcoming and, and supportive, and, and it's. I'm starting to engage with this new world. And, you know, I, I for example, I, there's a, a great um, girl who I sent her. And I saw her show and I Instagrammed her. She was so, like, I didn't expect to get a message back. She messaged me back straight away saying, thanks, Han, you know, lovely, all the best with your show. Like, so supportive. And it's, it's just simple things like that that there's, there's um, it makes a difference. Particularly with a show that's so candid and open with the ranges that you do, that must be hard as well to actually find the right tone in sharing what you want to share. I th- the, the most important thing I think in my shows is I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to offend people and unfortunately that doesn't create the best of art uh, or, or comedy. I'm trying to, to not, not offend people, I don't want to offend people, but make, make people have a point of view. I think that's important. The difference between offending people and making people have a point of view and if they're strongly about against something then that's them having a point of view and that's what I'm trying to do in the show rather than offend people just kind of make them reassess something they've thought of how challenging is it read the room because every country every audience is different this is this is actually a a a big question like a loaded question because do you do what the audience want you to do or do you push buttons to see what what happens or do you just do the show how you want to do it and see what happens. And I'm sort of going with the third one. I'm going, I will tr- read the room, but I'm doing my show and I'm doing it how I'm going to do it. If people are offended, okay, then maybe it's not the show for them. It's the simplest way to do it. I'm not going to tailor for every person, you know, in the room. I want people to have a good time. But there's a certain audience that will have a good time. I know they will. And there's a certain audience member that might not. And, and maybe that's not the show for them. Do you perceive yourself to be a fringe artist from now going on or do you want to be more of a festival-type artist? There's something I love about the fringe theatre. That's not to say I I couldn't take the show to to a more more festival feel, but there's something, there's like a real beauty having fringe theatre. I I, I will always support it. I I think it's a a great platform and, and somewhere that I will hopefully continue to do work that uh, is thought-provoking. So obviously I don't see this show as the only show I do. 
I also want to extend um, Zella as, as a character into some other facets because, you know, she's going to go through her life and encounter other things. Eventually, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to have children. I'd like to do some a show relating to that that mixes the genres and the music and that's sort of my brand where I want to mix all different musical genres and different like languages and play with themes but make it relevant so as as I age and progress I want my shows to reflect that and reflect my audience as well so I will be continuing on with with shows and I, I plan to also be doing more solo work with singing Zella is not Elizabeth. No, Zella is not Elizabeth. But does Elizabeth use Zella to test things in her personal or, yes. or oh, life? Yes, definitely. Zella is a... Uh, Zella gets away with everything, so of course I'm going to use Zella uh, to... She's, she's my muse. She's my, like... It, I think that's why a lot of people use characters, because not necessarily to hide behind them, but to be able to try things and separate yourself because you know, Zella started off very similar to me and as I'm, my life has progressed I've gone one way and Zella's gone the other way and, and that's how Zella, Zella formed from a nuance of truth and I think that's important. Do you have conversations as Elizabeth with Zella to sort everyday issues out? Yeah a little bit yeah I do. Um, Zella has her point of view whereas I think Liz back to me tries to make sense of things and, and like like we said before about the um, sort of women and male thing um, sometimes you can't actually decipher what's right and wrong and I think that's splitting myself into two people Zella's a bit more like it we'll just do this whereas Liz kind of thinks a bit too much so that's why Zella's good for me because sometimes she's like oh we'll just say this and if, if someone's offended okay whereas uh, Liz would think well how many people have I just offended by saying that line and already I'm thinking about the beginning of the uh, the interview thinking I wonder if I said that and that's offensive whereas Zella's like who cares just do it so Zella's helpful in that respect mm. and, and so having her with you all the time to have a conversation with <laughs> makes me sound mad well a little bit <laughs> people in your private circle are not asking you to speak on their behalf but do they sometimes end up with Zella instead of Liz a hundred percent my best friend um in in Sydney sh- she's like oh god you got a bit Zella there or and my, and my partner because I actually Zella's single uh but Liz is not single and my my partner will always be like okay leave Zella there and and then you can come come back so there is definitely a difference between the two Zella's a little bit of fun so maybe sometimes he wants Zella I don't know like <laughs> so you've got a set show yeah but future productions are being worked on. Yeah, I'm already thinking about future shows. And also the fact that uh, we haven't mentioned yet, but in the show there is a, um, spoiler alert, a talking kebab called Donna. She is sort of the tough love. She comes in about halfway through, um, even though she wasn't invited. And it's funny because Donna has a life, like, literally it's a kebab with eyes on it. Donna is literally a human to me. She's got a life of her own. She has her own Facebook account, so find Donna. Um, you know, she does her own stuff. But Donna is driving, like, does my head in. Like, all of a sudden, I'll get, like, because um, uh, Donna's managed by Donna, not by myself. Right. And the stuff I get sometimes, she does my head in. Uh, but she's a real person to me. Like, even though she's a kebab, uh, I have a true, deep relationship with that kebab. Sounds sus, doesn't it? Yeah, do you have the relationship with Donna or does Liz as Zella have a relationship with Donna? <laughs> do you know what? Zella has a relationship with Donna, but I have a relationship with Donna as Liz because sometimes I'll see stuff on my Facebook and say, you can't post that. You actually can't post that. So I'll like, have to log in, delete it, and then like, I take it down. So Liz does because Liz, uh, looking at who am I going to offend, wants to take some things down, whereas Zella is... Um, just annoyed by Donna constantly telling her she needs to put my clothes on. Donna, Donna, Donna. How much does alcohol play a part in this and how much does a green <laughs> dread help? Uh, you know, as a singer, and I wish I was more fun, but like, because I sing the opera in the show and I, like vocally it's a big thing, 
I'm so boring. I like literally. I drink during the show. I do get to drink a beer, which is delightful. But apart from I that, it's a VB. It's it's a classy Australian it's drink. It's a classy. When I was in the UK, I used to always buy Fosters because in the UK they believe we drink Fosters, and I used to have to explain to everyone it's a joke because no one in Australia drinks Fosters. But that's the only drink I get during this period. That is the only drink I will have during the fringe is VB. Lucky me. <laughs> and that's part of the show. Part of the show, obviously, yes. And that's got to do. We had uh, Jamie Lawson a few episodes ago talking from 2015 but but talking about how he's pretty much given up the drink for his voice mm, his mm. voice just can't take it yeah and I have some people say oh well what about this person and this person smokes and things I'm like that that might work for that person but for me if I drink it's uh, I'm short I'm a bit of a perfectionist so I, I would like to sing well <laughs> what's your idea of fashion what's Ooh. Liz's idea of fashion Ooh, I'm not very good at it to be honest I um if I can get it and it looks nice, but it's cheap, that's my idea of fashion. That's the dream. That's the sweet spot. Yeah. If someone says, oh, I like your dress, I say, mm, got it for 20 bucks. That's, you know, I've got to stop doing that, actually. It's getting a bit embarrassing when I, when I say that. It's like that thing where girls, like, someone says, oh, it's a cute dress. And like, it has pockets. You know, it's just a simple thing that we all need to stop doing. We just say thank you. And that's enough. <laughs> Avery Truffman, who is a producer on 99% Invisible, did a six-part series on articles of clothing. It's very An important. An entire episode on how pockets were invented. Hey, there's a there's a niche. There's and a how need. And reclaim them. We do like a good pocket, especially in a dress. On a wedding dress. It could be very handy if you can like sew that in somewhere. I'm sure it'd be very handy. Put your phone there. I don't know. I'm as we, you know, I'm. Hoping when I get married, I will ask someone to put some pockets in my wedding dress. Do you know? I think you actually might have come up with a really good idea. You should patent that. Like, just put that. No, I'm, I'm sure it might already be out there, but for you. Me Liz, personally, yeah. Shove some pockets in that wedding dress. So, two pockets in the wedding dress. So, one for mobile phone, one for the car keys, because yes. you'll obviously be driving. Yeah, and maybe the a car. snack. I imagine I'm going to be very hungry when I get married. Everyone, you don't see the bride eat. I'm going to be eating that whole time. That's what I've already said. Hopefully, not a kebab. Something a bit more ladylike. What else would you need in your pockets? As because you don't have a handbag, so what do you need? In your, okay. Makeup, obviously. Okay, so we're talking about. Let's <laughs> this workshop is fun. This. I love it. We're talking about pockets in Liz Shearer's wedding yeah, dress. Yeah, oh, me, not Zella. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, no, it's what? for you. It's for you. You've got a partner. She doesn't. That's true. So you're closer than she. Pockets are in the wedding dress. Where are they? And what's in the pocket? All right. So accessible. Right. So they're going to have to be at the front. They are going to, like, I can't imagine I have a bigger train out the back. So obviously front pockets, but like cinched in. Yeah. And what do so, I put in them? Right, so Can I get, like, do you reckon you could fit a tiny bottle of champagne? I was going to say vodka, but I thought that's actually probably not a great look. But like a tiny bottle of champagne, like when I want to celebrate before I, a food, I just know I'm going to need food. So I don't know what, like a, like a pie or something, like just something like a like sausage so, roll, something like a dirty, something I can have and eat quickly. And like, it's my day, so damn it. Yeah, so it's not a protein bar, it's a uh, sausage roll with sauce. It's it's literally something that oh, I... Sauce sachet. Oh, sauce sachet, but can you imagine? In me. my pocket? Yeah. So you need a pair of scissors to open the uh, sauce. No, one of those, you know those old school ones where you like yeah. pop open? Yeah, pop open, that would be what I do. Yeah. And a, and, a, and a napkin for my, like a long napkin to cover the dress when I eat said sausage roll. Can you imagine? I, ca I can literally imagine Liz would have sauce from like one end to the other of that dress. Maybe it needs to be a red dress. Maybe I just need to like go out with tradition and just shove that thing red to cover tomato sauce color. Done. Sorted. Let's talk about Zella briefly. <laughs> What's in her wedding dress pockets? Oh, definitely. Like maybe some handcuffs so the man doesn't leave her mm -hmm. or uh, some, some of those like sleeping tablets or something to, to knock him out so he doesn't run away. Is it like shotgun, like a small gun or something like that? Because obviously this, this groom is, uh, oh, does not know what he's getting himself into. A classy pistol. Yes, a sexy little pistol that she has. That makes sense. And then a tiny bowl of vodka, obviously. Done. Sorted. She's never going to marry. No. I think, uh, unfortunately, this is a pipe dream for Zoa. She's a bit intense. Three years ago, you were the lead in a sketch. It said, Theatre in the Pound. Mm -hmm. That's a classic venue. It's awesome. It was fantastic. What were you doing in Theatre in the Pound? We were workshopping uh, one of the, the first shows we did. What you did was you, you actually did your show and then the audience gave you feedback. Madness, like opening the floor to, to a whole lot of people. But it was so, it was generally like one of the most rewarding experiences because people were quite candid about what they, the bits where they thought in the show, like that was good, but that needed work. And like straight away you got feedback. I, I would love that to happen. I haven't seen anything like that in Australia, and I think it's a great idea. True workshop sense. A hundred percent, yeah. I'm pretty sure that would be the kind of feedback that 
Honey Gatsby has been trying mm. in the States, the new show Douglas, which will be its opening in Melbourne, but it's premiere in a place called Adelaide. Ah. Talk to us a bit more about how you got there and, and how that experience worked through. Me and my comedy partner at the time, we applied for everything we could and uh, we, we, uh, we promoted the show and I, and I contacted the, the, the people at this um, team and we said we had the show and we wanted to see what they could, what they could help us with. And then they suggested the Theatre in the Pound as, as an option for us. We just waltzed in, to be honest. It was one of those situations where everything aligned and we got to actually do something that was so beneficial to the, the show at the time. Currently working with NIDA? Mm. I work with the writers and the directors and um, being a part of a, a workplace with such creative, imaginative people and, and not to mention supportive is the best thing that has ever happened to me and that it is such a fantastic hub of uh, activity and I um Because when we hear NIDA, I'm hearing about the pinnacle of Australian mm. acting, writing yes. and directing everything. And you're there coordinating people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, co- I coordinate as the master. The I coordinate the masters and the directors there, and it is honestly a pleasure. And I look forward to going to work every day. And I'm, and I'm hand, you know, hand on heart. I mean that because it's such an honour to be in such an exciting and, uh, you know, these are the people that like change makers. They're they're creating new work. They're pushing boundaries. They're they're experimenting and uh, and they're actually just really nice people. So. We have to support each other, and you know, you know, whether you come from NIDA or come through NIDA, or, or you're, you're making your own way um, artistically, there needs to be a support among artists, and uh, and I really feel that there, and I hope to kind of spread that everywhere I go. That that we need each other to to progress. It's not just about one person. With that key in mind, are you very confident about the future of Australian theatre and and the writers that we have? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the stuff like you know, maybe I'm biased, but the uh, the writers and the directors that we work with are fantastic. They they are pushing boundaries. Uh, they're creating. They're changing their mindsets when they when they come into NIDA as well. Like some of them obviously have um, fully fledged ideas about what they want to do, but they're also on this journey. There is exciting work coming out of Australia and. And I'm really proud. Like since living in the UK and coming back, I've already seen a huge change, and uh, and it's exciting. And and not to sidetrack a little bit, but the Lab OM is having a bit of trouble at the moment um, financially. And I can't stress enough that we need places like Lab OM that that support artists. Like there are there are places like that all through the UK. So from Brisbane over the UK back to now Sydney with NIDA. Is that a case of uh, Liz' fresh eyes that you got as well? I've definitely got fresh eyes. Uh, it, it's also a bit tricky because, you know, you feel like you're sort of starting again, uh, trying to build the networks. Uh, when I hate the word networks. I prefer the word community to networks. Networks just sounds a bit brutal. But I, I do have fresh eyes and I'm excited to see what's happening. And, and, and there's a lot happening. And we just got to keep supporting it and, and trying to get... Unfortunately, the arts is one of those areas that there isn't a lot of funding and we need to try and push for more funding as much as we can because the work that we do creates thought, makes us question the world and, y- you know, we need to do that. There's, there's a need. How do you, as a punter, believe that we, as a fellow punter, mm. should engage in the arts? So put your artist hat aside for a moment. As a punter... In, in, perhaps in the sense of actually quantifying what the arts are worth, actually maybe changing our mindsets that, oh, I'll just pay a tenner to get into the, this, see this show. It's a bit of, you know, when you're paying money to Netflix uh, streaming and, and, you know, a big dinner out, you could, you could pay the same, like you could pay less to see a show. And I think people don't kind of give it enough, like, uh, enough value. So, for example, to see the opera, you might be paying $180. And then something else, you might be paying $20. I think there maybe needs to be more of a, um, like, a, not a standardised amount, but, but maybe some, some help for people to go see shows. So some, some funding or, or, like, better deals for under 30s and that kind of thing. I also want to talk about 
that idea of you mentioned this thing called Netflix. I yeah. have some television on demand or something. <laughs> I have no idea. What is this thing? That that's a mass thing that people will talk yeah. about a maths or a TV show on mass. But the conversation then is just in sound bites, where the arts is more of a genuine conversation. To take a step to actually go out, leave the house, make it into a night. Like once upon a time, it used to be a thing. You get dressed up, you'd go out, you'd, you'd meet your friends, have a drink, and then go see the theatre. Like. I, I love that. I, I love the idea of people would put money aside. They m- might not have much, but they'd budget to go see the theatre and, and see something new and then talk about it the next day. You know, you can't get that from a Netflix series. I just don't think the magic is there. And I think we got to keep the magic alive. It's been absolutely magical speaking with you. Liz Shearer, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for doing Radio Notes. Thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth Shearer. For more details on their work, head to MissSellerShear.com. Or for more fun, both Miss Sellershear and her kebab, Donna, that can be found on social media. Been getting some great feedback from the radio stations on AM, FM and particularly digital who have been sharing this podcast, which is released on a Sunday as its episodes are released across the following week. Their timely releases as well has been providing for some great feedback. And thank you very much to those that have been listening via that particular medium. And apologies to one particular country, I guess you could say, that I've asked for the show not to be broadcast in just for the next little while until I get myself back up to speed. You can, of course, still listen to the podcast released on a Sunday, which will give you the full episodes uninterrupted. Time now to go off the charts. That time of the episode where I have a look at the Australian Recording Industry Association charts, see what's been happening on them. And the top Australian album on the Australia chart is The Seekers with Farewell. Dennis Lewis has been dropped down to two and thus the Hilltop Hoods have been dropped down to three in the Australian artist charts of the ARIA charts. The number one streaming Australian single at the moment is The Hilltop Hoods. And Dean Lewis finds himself at number three and four and six at the moment. And Amy Shark at number seven. Quick look through. And the Veronicas are brand new at number 16 with Think of Me. Uh, That's number 16 on the streaming charts for the Veronicas this week. Which does beg the question, what's happening with the Australian singles charts and whether or not the Veronica's make an appearance there? Yes, they do, from 17 to 12. So not appearing in the streaming charts last week, but uh, have appeared in the sales and the streaming charts this week. And brand new in at number 15 in the Australian singles charts is Tame Impala's Borderline. And I Said Hi by Amy Shark, holding steady at number 20. For the overall album charts of the Australian Recording Industry Association, BTS are in at number one, brand new. Billy English then drops to two. And then the Seekers are brand new overall at number four in the Australian record charts. One that I was interested in seeing from the amount of advertising and the fact that uh, it actually has Jeff Tweedy on some of the production work, Nora Jones' brand new album, Begin Again, begins its chart debuting at number 14 in the Australian charts this week. And as for the Chemical Brothers, they came in at number 17 with their brand new one, No Geography. And as for Labyrinth, Sia and Diplo Presents, the LSD record, so this is what I would say is brand new music from Sia, is in at number 49 as a new release album. Number 49. Wow. There you go. And a re-entry at number 50 is an artist called Taylor Swift with an album called 1989. Radio Notes Discoveries. One of the world's best broadcasters who has uncovered numerous big names over the last few decades has released their own debut single under the name Jump Circus. I speak of Nick Harcourt together with Keita Klain and Ben Peller and heaps of other fantastic artists together under the umbrella 
of Jump Circus. The debut single is called Concrete and Sand. I'll give you some more details, particularly links, so you can have a listen for yourself of this fascinating new debut single from Harcourt and Friends. Very fine discovery over the last week here across the Radio Notes desk in Adelaide, South Australia. Of course, if there's some music or something you think I need to know about, you can always email radionotes at writeme.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-M-E dot com. And I'll have a look at it in due course. Coming up next episode, our feature guest will be this guy. With the instrumental stuff, because I've been doing it a lot longer, it comes a lot more naturally and maybe it is more subconscious as well. Like it just through what I like listening to and what I like playing, I guess those feelings come out in the instruments it's a lot more intangible and kind of hard to to pinpoint with instrumental stuff with the ep as well i played everything and recorded everything myself so i had to like play drums and that was that's probably the the least tight thing on the music but i think like it still had my hopefully had my personality in it and my feel i guess and i i think if i'm you know, if I'm doing everything, I hope there's like some kind of connection between me playing drums and me playing bass and it all feels like it's kind of being held together by by my style. David Thor, talking about his solo album. You may know him from The Cactus Child and various other incarnations in the Melbourne music scene. A sit-down conversation with him will be our feature chat next episode here on Radio Notes. In the first couple of weeks of the 2019 federal election currently happening at the moment, I did want to share with you a little bit of Kim Beasley, who was opposition leader, who was running for prime minister back in the day when I had a chat with him. The extended doorstop that I did with him, that's an interview after he does sort of a press conference, features uh, a bit about uh, the Liberal Party, about WIC, about uh, One Nation and how they don't have a chance of getting in, he believed, and various other very hyperly politicalized issues. I thought I'd share just one little bit of it with you, and it was regarding something for which can be quite political, but I was asking as a community broadcaster at the time. Here's uh, Kim Beasley and me having a chat. Community broadcasting. Mike Lee promised funding for community broadcasting. (laughs) Yes. If you get in, will you? Mate, you caught me on the hop on that one. I, I, uh, it's a while since I looked at the community broadcasting issues. You're going to get, get, get a, an evasive political answer to that. Uh, I was sympathetic to community broadcasting when I was minister and gave them the, uh, the right to uh, get out there and get a bit of uh, sponsorship. So uh, I have a sympathy for uh, community broadcasters. But for six years, I haven't given a minute's thought to the funding of it, I'm afraid to say. That's probably why we're still an AM after 25 years. (laughs) That may well be true. Kim Beasley. His latest role was ambassador to the United States for Australia. But at the time that I had a chat with him, he was running for Prime Minister of Australia. I think early 2000s or so that chat was from. As I mentioned, there was a number of other issues covered in that chat. But uh, I just want to play that a little bit to fill out our episode for this time round. Next time we catch up on our next episode, as I mentioned, David Thor of the Cactus Channel talking about his solo work as well as some of the record company work that he does as well. That's next time here on Radio Notes. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 